What does it mean Messiah matters? It means apart from him we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Do people realize that their their theology is completely engulfed and enwrapped with the Messiah? We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. It's Wednesday, January 10th. This is Messiah Matters, number 201. My name is Caleb Hag. Well, kind of. My name is Caleb Hag. I'm broadcasting from the offices of Torah Resource. And with me, of course, from the dark corners of his own basement, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Hey. I like it. How's it going, brother? Are we num- this is really, this has got to be number one, I guess. I don't well, it know. is. is. It's it number- 201. One. Let's see. There is a one there. Two. We don't want to shock people's systems too much all at once. Right. No, I get that. Yeah. <clears throat> so I was thinking about, like, you know, Messiah Matters is M.M. Yeah. M and M. I was thinking, well, no, I was just thinking, mm. <laughs> no, here's mm. why. <laughs> Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? That's mm. a ta'amu. Right. Taste and see. And it's like, hmm. So what I know, people are like listening to like our intro and they're like, hmm. Okay, this is like, hmm. Okay, (laughs) do I like this? Okay, a little bit different flavor. You know, I Hmm. I might introduce it. We've changed the menu a little bit. My mind instantly goes to marketing. Unfortunately, maybe that's bad of me, but I was thinking of like trying to take the M&M logo. (laughs) <laughs> and make it into Messiah Matters. Well, oh, we did that with RC. Yeah, we did RC Cola. Did, it, we, get very, a ce- did we get a cease and desist? No. <laughs> no. No, we did not. But the thing is, is that, uh, you know, if you change it enough, they what are they, they going to do? Anyway, speaking of, mm. speaking of. Uh, mm. good. That's what you do when it tastes good. Taste and see that Lord is good. Uh, speaking of, of, you know, like logos and things like that, if for some reason. You are such a big Robin Caleb show fan that you have to have some merchandise. You need to get it now because we're taking an, all of the Robin Caleb show merchandise down at the end of January, oh, and it will be re-put. Uh, it'll be replaced with Messiah Matters merchandise. So you can go to TorahResource.com, and you can find uh, in the merchandise section of the store. You can find uh, Robin Caleb show. T-shirts and and uh, things like that that will all be replaced. So if you if you need it, go get it now. It's it's like the the uh, the first of your clearance blowout. <laughs> um, okay, well we, before we don't we don't hate the Robin Caleb show. We actually look back two hundred episodes, two hundred episodes, and oh, it's we like, still well, we still kind of are the Robin Caleb show, right? Yeah, but but I know people are gonna say like, what's uh, Messiah matters? What's that? Oh, it's the Robin Caleb show. Oh, okay. It's like that's how it's going to be translated. Well, no. Messiah matters. 
is brought to you by TorahResource.com. And uh, we've already mentioned merchandise at, uh, for the Robin Caleb show on, on Torah Resource. But you can find all sorts of stuff on Torah Resource like articles and uh, videos. And um, it, right now, if you're not part of the Torah Resource mailing list, you should go to the store and look at the banners um, at the top. One of them is for a free download of It Is Often Said. And all you have to do is sign up to be on the mailing list. And if you sign up to be on the mailing list, you get instant access to a free <clears throat> PDF of that book. And it is a fantastic book. It's, it's short. It's about 68 pages, I think. But it's uh, three uh, answering three often uh, questions that are often a- uh, asked by friends and relatives of people who um, keep Torah. And so uh, it's nice and concise and easy to understand. And I would encourage everyone to go – uh, to go get it. And if, if you're already on the mailing list, then you already got a free copy because we send free copies of stuff like that to our mailing list all the time. Uh, you can give us a call. The Messiah Matters comment line can be uh, found at 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. And then, of course, send us emails. We love to get emails. Seahag at TorahResource.com. That's Seahag at TorahResource.com. Okay, and we got 26 people right now in the chat room. Chat room, check this out. Um, I got I got some new graphics here, and I'll just I'll just scroll through one just one of these real quick so that you'll so it won't be too much of a shock for people. But check this out. Uh, let's say I need to uh, let you know about my you know I'm just talking talking, and then all of a sudden oh oh what is that? That's my email address. Mm-hmm. That's right. Just keep, yeah. I've been, I've been hard at work. <laughs> Rob can't see what's going on, so. Well, I don't have the the internet. What do you call it? YouTube open because it it'll chew up some of my bandwidth here. But that's my challenge. That that also helps me because I I like to see and read everybody's comments. Yeah. And then I'll get you know me. I get distracted and I that. You know, I was Carl talking to Ariel classy. Berkowitz about this. Okay. I was talking to Ariel Berkowitz, and he's 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 just he's a wealth of knowledge, so wonderful. Yeah, and he's like, well, he's like, in the way I see it, is that there's two kinds of people, right? There's people who are like categories and 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 being able to put things in where they belong, and then there's spaghetti brain people. <laughs> and I'm like, me, I'm spaghetti brain. Uh, I'm, I, I see connection in a lot of different things, even when it's not there, you know? And so I have, that has to be reined in, but rabbit trails can get long and detailed for me. You know, and to be so, honest with you, listening to your Galatians presentation, the, I which, think one, which was written, but that's the point. I think one of the things that when you're giving lectures, I mean, this is a personal note, but when you're giving lectures and, and things like that, if you have it written out, I do better. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Okay. Cool. Well, let's let's go to some. Uh, that's not where my show notes are. Sorry. Okay. Let's go to. Um, we have a couple of comments that were left on uh, the YouTube page, which, by the way, is staying the same. If you're already subscribed to the YouTube page, don't worry. We just changed the name on the YouTube page. Changed the graphics. It's all the same. So you yeah. Don't we have had to... some people contact us. Ask. They were concerned about that. Yeah. Uh, so that I think... and our Facebook page is the same. All that. I mean. <clears throat> Pardon me. I actually changed. <laughs> it's weird how you have to like. You wouldn't think that this that changing the name of of something is such a big deal, 
But you can't just go into a page and change the name. You have to contact Facebook and be like, hey, I want to change the name of my page. They have to approve it. And then you have to you have to request a change of the URL. All of our graphics had to be totally redone and re-uploaded. And I mean, just iTunes had to be contacted. It's a lot of work, actually. I've spent I've spent hours and hours trying to uh, trying to make the changeover. So I'm I'm happy we did though. I think it's good for work. The, good work for the better for the better. Okay, um, here is one of the uh, comments that we got. Now, last week, for those who were not with us, um, show 200 of the Robin Caleb show, we talked about the Sabbath, right? And we talked about, could we were answering questions on that were sent to us about, can the Sabbath be any day? Could I celebrate the Sabbath on, say, Sunday, like most Christians would say that they do, right? Give me just one second. I need to uh, cough here. Sorry about that. Okay. Um, and so the question, that was the question that came in. And uh, Thomas writes on our on our page, he says, uh, does the six days you shall work hold the same onus? I guess my, cons-, and then actually I responded to that, but I'm going to uh, now read his second comment too, because I think they kind of go hand in hand. He says, I guess my concern is interacting with the text. Uh, this way goes as far as rest, Sabbath and work can be contextually applied. If the seventh day rest is not just a definitive command, but also an eternal covenant without exception, then the equally directive six days of work isn't merely being busy. It is associated with the uh, toil of plowing and harvest. Okay. Now, the response that I gave to the first question that he had posed um, was, and I'll just read that again because it's very short. Does the six days you shall work hold the same onus? My answer to that is yes, absolutely it does. Six days you shall work. Now, the question is... Well, literally, it's six days you shall do all your work. <clears throat> interesting. I hadn't got words, that. In other words, well, I'm kind of jumping in on your point. No, 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 no. Please, go for it. My point is that, is it, my understanding is that it's, there's one day that is to be distinctly set apart from the others. Right. Um, and there are all sorts of tasks pertaining to our livelihood, which as he rightly pointed out, uh, you know, have to do with manual labor or, you know, all the different, whatever kind of labor we're engaged in to have a livelihood, to be able to pay bills and have sure. food on the table and shelter. Um, I think that, uh, are those are just part of being in the world and they need to be done. So God's saying those things need to be done, but there's one day where it is set apart and, and we're remembering that we are not of this world. We're of the kingdom, right? We're of, we're his children and that's our highest priority. And and we need to uh, have that uh, healthy uh, time, you know, that, that builds us up and helps us be strong lights in the world um, during those other six days. So uh, what I'm wondering, do you hear him asking, does it say thou shalt work six days in a row? In other words, thou shalt work every day for six days. Is that kind of what he's saying? I think that's what he's getting at. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> that's a, it's, you know, I've, I've thought about that. The, um, it's a decent question. In other, words, for- in other words, can I take, what if I get all my work done in four days? Can I take two days off? Can I take two days off, then have the Shabbat? Is that, well, I, it sounds like he's trying to get to that kind of... Uh, yeah, and, and, and then the question would be, what about vacation? Am I allowed to take two weeks off in the year? 
and sit on the beach if I, you know, right. if I so choose, mm. which right. I don't think I've ever done, but could I do that and <laughs> not be sinning? Um, so to me, I, I think your point is actually very well taken in that it says, now give it to me again. In six days, all your work shall be done, right? Like well, as do, in do, all, do well, all your work within six days. Honestly, I don't have it in front of me here. I can look it up here. <laughs> See, for well, me, and, and we're gonna have to. I mean, if we were gonna do this right, we'd look at all the all the texts. You know, we'd bring them all. But if, let's, if we just go to Exodus twenty, for example, but the the other thing is, is that <clears throat> you know, for me, so so I work at Torah Resource. I work a five day work week, right? And I take one day. I I take this Sabbath off, and then my family has Sunday. Well, on Shabbat, we don't spend any money. We don't go, you know, we don't go to restaurants. It's or, not a family. That's right. Exactly. It's not a, it's, it's not a family day. It's a, it's, it's God's not a family day. outing kind of day. Yeah. Right. On Sundays, however, we usually take the day off. I take the day off and I'll do work around the house or we'll go somewhere fun with the family or, or, uh, whatever. To me, that's, uh, you know, some of that can be considered work. But it says in Isaiah, if you correct me, I'm going to paraphrase. It says, uh, if you'll put away your own pleasures and, in, you know, and enjoy the Sabbath. Right? Mm-hmm. You, know what, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So uh, what does it mean to put away your own pleasures? Anyway, go ahead with Exodus. No, I just pulled them up just to re- kind of refresh my mind here. A- Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, they're worded pretty much the same. In terms of uh, the six days, you shall do all all your work. Um, so and, uh, the question, it seems like our, what this means is, is it don't do, and, and then the contrast, don't do work on the Shabbat. So the point, I think we would all agree that the point is, the Shabbat is to be set apart right. from the other six days. So that there's no question on that. The question then becomes, what is the, uh, what if I do all my work in five days and then I have it this other day, am I sinning by not working on it? Well, if you're setting it apart as another Sabbath in your mind, that would be a theologically, you know, misstep, right? That would be like a miscategory miscategorization. You can't take one of the other six days and call it a Shabbat. I think we would probably agree on that. Well, no, I mean, some in the church might say, no, no it's Sunday. You know, this, yeah. it, or pick, it's just any day of seven is what's important. Uh, someone might make that argument. But I'm of the opinion that if you finish all your work in, in, in four or five days, you know, great. Or what if, what if you're a person that, that can finish, you know, somehow you're super, super efficient, right? And you've maybe maybe you've invested and you've you're you're like you're able to do all your work in like a couple days, you know, and you have a lot of leisure time to pursue other things. That's still not making those other days Sabbaths, right? Right. Um, so okay, let's move and then on. The, the other one okay. other aspect is the priesthood. The priesthood labors doesn't matter if it's a Sabbath, right? right. They still and then we know that there are times when. They have to do a, a sin offering on the Shabbats in the, if they're like, for example, a Shabbat, if I remember right, in Passover week. So in the, in, in Matzot. And if there's, you know, the Shabbat within, um, so there are exceptions. Shukot, what you're saying. Yeah. That's what the priests have to actually 
do a sin offering, right? So they have right. to kill, cook, and eat food on those days. So, so Yeshua, of course, quotes the priesthood as this issue of like, well, what is? It, it kind of tries it challenges us to think more specifically about what is the Shabbat, what is work, what is not work, what is the core command here, and great question. And uh, I don't know if we answered it, but. Let's move on. Okay, we got uh, we got another one, and actually, I do want to get to our main topic today because I'm. Uh, well, we'll talk about that in a second. So this that's one, one of the cha- that's one of the changes with yeah. Ron Caleb shows. We want to get to our main topic, right? Um, <laughs> so this one is actually it should be rather short, and I'm going to kind of expand on this person's comment a little bit to maybe hopefully get more of a direct question. Why not concerning the Sabbath just simplify, refer all to what God's Word says. Why bring in a non-believer's view, no matter how well it's written? He's talking about our reference to Heschel and uh, the book, The Sabbath. We, uh, we, okay, we, we reference uh, Abraham Heschel, and I said that that book was ap- absolutely excellent. It's actually one of the things that started to bring me back um, to a want to keep the Sabbath, because I had fallen away, um, and actually my I started falling away uh, from the faith, or moving away from the faith, I should say. Um, when I was in Israel. And so the Sabbath was really, by the time I got back to the U.S., um, I I could care less. Um, but one of the things that really kind of grabbed me and brought me back years later was reading the Sabbath by Heschel. So this actually goes to the question of, should we be reading books by other people and, or by, I, not by other people, by non-believers? And if we are going to be reading books by non-believers, um, should we recommend them to people? That's a that's a fair question. It's a good question. And I try not to yeah. recommend too many books, especially by Jewish non-believing Jewish authors. And the reason why is because um, non-believing Jewish authors tend to get into Kabbalah, which we mentioned about Heschel, right? Um, his he, he's kind of uh, he has a wide range of, of writing, uh, everything from philosophy mm-hmm. down to Jewish mysticism and um, interacting with Christians and, and whatnot. Um I try to, to not recommend people who are outright Kabbalists or rest on Kabbalistic works. And I do that because I think that a lot of the time it's a trap. But, you know, there are some really, really good um, scholarly books by people who are not believers. So, for instance, um, now I don't know uh, I don't know what the faith of a lot of uh, the scholars are that I read. Um, I don't know if Jody Magnus is is uh, religious or not, but she is a fantastic archaeologist, and she's written some of the predominant works on Qumran and and whatnot. So I don't think that you can really write a book on Qumran unless you're or do work on Qumran unless you're actually interacting with her. In the same way, I can't you know in my thesis work I can't um, I can't write a a good thesis without at least interacting with and and looking at what Bart Ehrman has to say about uh, Luke 22, 17 through 20. It's That's just, right. You know, he's... And Bart Ehrman is is uh, definitely not a believer. Um, Here's... here. There's kind of a pastoral angle to this... to responding to this question. It's a really good question. Because all things being... If everybody was the same, if everybody's temperament and personality and... Um, critical attention to detail was the same, then there would be one general principle that you could say, yeah, okay, read, you read anything you want, 
but know why you're doing it. Know who the author is. Try to be, a, you know, to the best of your ability, see what their agenda is. And then be, be aware that while you're reading their work, their agenda is going to, and bias is going to uh, be woven in, right? It's inextricable from what their, their engagement with whether the source, whatever their sources are. Um, now that being said, from that pastoral perspective, not everybody, not every believer has the same, uh, strengths or competencies. So there might be a book that I would have no problem referring one person to, but I, I, there might be another person I'd say, I don't think they should even look at that book. Right. Um, and there's, and, and sure, there's a, a sense of subjectivity there. Um, like, well, who's to say, but you know, we live in a time where reading there, there are millions and millions and millions, <clears throat> pardon me, of books in the world. And the vast majority of those books are probably not written by believers. Right. So just as a, a, a to be in this world and not of it, if I am not going to ever read anything, you know, then I'm setting up this thing. I'm only going to read works by X, Y, and Z. Well, let's put that in a far uh, uh, example. Let's say I, I was a Mormon and I can only read Mormon Right. Or I'm a Jehovah's Witness and I'm only going to read Jehovah's Witness or I'm a uh, whatever. And I that is a we got to be careful about that. Well, right. What, because that's where the sectarianism can really that insulation is not good. So for me, the first thing that comes to mind last night, I sat down and uh, I had forgotten the book that I'm actually reading. Uh, here at my office. And so I, I looked at my bookshelf. I have quite a few books that I haven't read on my bookshelf. And um, one of the things that I've cracked a couple of times but never really finished the whole thing, but know is very good, is The Mystery of Romans by Mark Nanos. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dr. Oh. Nanos and I, 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 I've met him numerous times. We chat usually every year at the SBL. And uh, he's a fantastic scholar. And what he did in that book is really kind of push the limits um, and ask some very poignant questions and reinterpret Romans in a way that I think a lot of uh, people, a lot of Messianics, Hebrew roots, Torah observant Christians really, really have benefited from because of, uh, of his take on, on what, what Paul is saying. And what, and what Nanos um, suggests is that Paul is actually, um, he's pro-Israel at this point. So he's also talking to the Gentiles not to snub, snub their nose at Israel, essentially. Yeah, it's a much it's, more Jewish reading of, of Paul. Right. Well, yeah. to be honest, I, I, I'm not positive, but I think Mark Nanos is not a believer. I think that he's a reform Jew. Mm -hmm. um, but that book is excellent. And so, uh, but if that's the case, you know, Paul is still, you know, he's still going to the Jewish people. He's still, now, I'm not necessarily saying that, uh, you know, he's, he's, <laughs> he's offering books by uh, non-believers to other believers. And so it's, it's a good warning and, and, and whatnot. But at the same time, I think that uh, uh, The Sabbath by Heschel is one of those books where he, uh, he is passionate about the Sabbath, something a lot of Christians are not. And he puts that passion into a very eloquent, eloquent way of speaking. And I think that's why that book is so beneficial for um, believers who are interested in the Sabbath is because it, it looks at the Sabbath from a way that uh, a born and raised uh, Torah observant Jew looks at the Sabbath um, as this wonderful blessing. And so I think that's, I think that's why it's uh, that's why so, I would recommend so, it. Sure. And the general principle then is 
um, know to the best of, you know that you can find out. Learn about the author, right? Know, and that that's gonna. And what are their convictions? What are their? Do they have a, a faith commitment? And and recognize that that's probably gonna, you know, at some point, be part of the picture uh, while you're reading and, and understanding. But for example, back to your point about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then we can change subject. Sometimes, like in the SBL environment, every, let's say you go to a section like I did on the, the Epistle to the Galatians. So we have a whole room, you know, a, a full panel full of people who are reading and talking about Galatians, right? So I'm, I can listen to their arguments, which would be like reading their book, and I can find things, okay, I never thought of that idea before, right? This, this person makes a, a, a pretty good point that hadn't occurred to me, and I'll make note of that. And then I'll reflect on it, and then I'll have my own response. And so I, I gain, a, I, I grow and develop in my, uh, both with a faith element and an intellectual element, even though the person giving the presentation or writing the paper or the book, I don't share certain uh, commitments that well, with them. This is this so, is this is what education in general does, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and, it, and I'm not even talking about uh, religious education. If you go to school, or you you know, and once you, especially once you get into college, basically what you're doing is you're listening to different points from different people who disagree with each other, and then what you're having to do is weigh those different points and try to make your mm -hmm. own opinion on it. That's what education, you know, higher education helps you do. And so um, I think it's important for us to, as believers to be able to do that, uh, especially, especially in the Hebrew roots, Messianic and Torah movement, because uh, there's a lot of nonsense that's coming in. So we need to be able to weigh what's going on. Okay, let's move on because I really want to get to our, our main topic. So um, obviously, as everyone now knows, we've, uh, we've decided to take a little bit different approach to... Um, just the way that we do things. Obviously, we're still answering emails. We're still going to talk about um, topics from time to time that maybe are facing uh, people or, or that people write in and ask us about. But as a general rule, we're going to continue a theme throughout um, the next, I don't know how long. And that theme is going to be basically the Messiah, right? Messiah matters. So we're talking about Messiah matters. And um, so the thing that I've thought about recently is let's put ourselves kind of back into the first century and try to understand a little bit about what it might have been like to be living in the first century and have the Messiah appear. And this has brought me to uh, some other interesting thoughts on what that, what that would have looked like. And so um, the, one of the first questions that I asked myself and then asked Rob is, do you think that people in the first century thought that the Messiah was showing up in their lifetime? In other words, like they knew he was showing up then before he did. Or is it like believers are today where it's where people say things like, well, he's coming back and we think he's coming back because all the prophecies point to him coming back in my lifetime. It's kind of a guess, right? No one knows the time or the hour, but it's kind of a guess. And, and everybody says, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking at the, um, I'm looking at the prophecies and, you know, the newspaper says this and, you know, Rome is doing this for the first century people or whatever. So it, his, his, uh, coming is eminent. Well, 
I started to wonder what if they actually believed that he was coming then. And this kind of got me onto a, a, a good rabbit trail that I think has kind of developed. Do you want to jump in here, Rob? You want to talk at all about kind of the, what, the direction and, and what well, you want to see? No, I, I like what you're what you're getting at, trying to imagine ourselves there, and we can look at the political situation, the religio political whatever world, right? Because we can't separate religion from politics back in the first century, right? So that's one thing. You know, as we imagine going back in time, we got to unload our modern baggage, right? And so religion and politics and the economy, these things are just absolutely inextricably, uh, it's one giant thing, you know, right. in first century Judea. And so, uh, and there is a hope. If for those and and uh, one thing that united what we would say probably you know Jews in the first century is just the belief of God's revelation in the past to the to the ancient fathers and now even if you're a group that believes that let's say the Book of Jubilees is is like divine or even the Book of Enoch if you believed if you were a group that believed the Book of Enoch is divine. Uh, the text meaning is is like a divine message. You're still imagining Israel um, as a people that is trying to preserve an ancient revelation of God acting on behalf of His chosen people, and then you're trying you're anticipating Him to act again in the midst of all this turmoil. You you look back and you see, wow, there was God made promises. Stuff happened, but he showed himself faithful. And then right. stuff happened, uh, but and, and he showed himself faithful. And now we're in this crazy time. I think that generally we could say that they, you know, even even diverse groups, even the Samaritans, as we know from John 4, she says the Messiah will come. So even these diverse, ideologically diverse sectarian groups— right probably all were motivated. Why were they motivated to be so intensely affiliated with whatever group is because they, there was some underlying hope and they wanted to get it right. Right. They, they wanted to identify, take that hope, that longing for God to act. And they were trying to say, what, what do I need to do to be in on the action when God does act? And that I can be in the right, that I can be on the side of God. I think in a very general sense, I would say that that there was a lot of that going along. See, but I wonder uh, too, you know, we look at some of the prophecies and I didn't pull the Daniel prophecy today. We'll talk about that another time, but you know, the reckoning of uh, weeks in, in Daniel, I wonder if they'd figured it out. If they'd figured it out and they know, okay, I got, you know, the Messiah is supposed to show up. We don't know how old he'll be, but the Messiah is supposed to show up around this time. You know, did they do calculations like that? Well, we know in Daniel, Daniel 9 starts out with <clears throat> Daniel's in exile, Babylonian exile, and he's reading Jeremiah. So he's reading Jeremiah right. and he's trying to figure out what this, the, how long is the, the what's called the galut or the, the diaspora, the exile. How long is the exile? When is God going to restore his people? And that's what's on Daniel's heart. Right. So even if we go back 
and that's before the second temple period. What is it? It reflects this. Uh, what do we have? We have a, a, a very well-educated uh, Jewish uh, man who is not only educated in his own scriptures, but in the he, he was trained in all Babylonian texts. And so that means the different languages and probably magic and wisdom lore and all this kind of stuff, just like Moshe, Moshe probably was, according to Acts 7, and he, he was he educated in Egyptian stuff. Uh, Daniel's coming from the, that Eastern, you know, uh, Babylonian world. But what's the, why is he, re, why do we have this uh, Jewish sage who's in exile reading Jeremiah, fasting and praying? Because he has that hope. He's longing for God to act in history once again, according to his promises, to show himself faithful for his own namesake. And so the whole confession of sin that is this wonderful, powerful passage in, in Daniel 9, which parallels very well uh, Nehemiah 9, which is Nehemiah then is another person who comes um, and is involved in, okay, we're going to rebuild Jerusalem. And this is this hope, and it's our sins, and it's the sins of our fathers. And we, need, we are under the curse of the Torah. That's the language that Daniel right, uses. Right. We are under the curse of the Torah, and it's not God's fault. It's our fault, and our and we confess, and it's not because of our righteousness. It's because of, for your namesake, for your righteousness, have mercy on your people. Beautiful theology. I mean, just the core theology of, of being a child of God can be uh, exegeted out of these prayers. And that seed, we have to believe that that was in the hearts of many, many Jews in the Second Temple period. But the scripture, still, we're still talking about Tanakh, still makes it clear that once they finished Zerubbabel's temple, there was, it was not the same. Yeah. It was not the glory of that, you know, we're never told that the kavod of Yodhe Vavhe filled the temple. We don't even know. There's mystery as to what's going on with all the vessels of the, you know, the, the menorah and the, the Ark of the Covenant or all that, you know, where's all, where is all this stuff? And so there's a sense of incompleteness right. from the beginning of the Second Temple period. And then you have Hellenism come in like a giant uh, wave. And then yeah. you have the Maccabean period, and there's this sense of national strength and uni uh, unity under the banner of the Torah. And, but then what happened? And those were priests, but then all of a sudden they were kings too. Yeah, right? So now they take the king uh, kingship on them. Well, what happens after several generations? That crumbles away, and you have Rome come in, and then Rome is this iron fist, right? And and as we get to the later, you know, the last century of the Second Temple period, it's really under that Roman uh, strong rulership. That's where the rise of Herod is, and of course, the now the placement, the political placement and appointee of uh, high priests. So you've got at the very top of the, and then not to mention the expansion of the temple to be at this wonder of the world rather than it, uh, worship of God. So the priorities get scrambled. And, and this is where this is the, you think of the person like Daniel, what would Daniel, you know, someone with the same fire and zeal that Daniel had or, or fire and zeal that uh, Nehemiah had in, in Yeshua's actual day, if they were, you know, hundred years later, 
what would they have been doing? Well, they would have been, I think, like the John the Baptist. They would have been like, this is totally gone the wrong direction. It's it's totally corrupt. Yeah, yeah. repent. Is, <laughs> repent. Yeah, repent. This yeah. is God's this is God's wrath is on the way. This has become a har- they've made a harlotry out of out of this. And that they would have been right with Yeshua, I think, knocking over those money changing tables and saying this temple's going down, you know. I that's that's my gut kind of feeling. Okay, okay, so so this is actually very good because this kind of gives us a a little bit a very brief overview of essentially from the diaspora when when Daniel's out in the diaspora and now kind of a timeline up until the to the first century. And now obviously we we are scholars are completely split on on when Yeshua was born and, and showed up, but let's let's go to the scripture. Uh, we're looking at Matthew two one through eight. Now remember in Matthew one, um, Matthew goes through the genealogy, right? And From Abraham. Oh, that's one last point, if I may. Yeah, please. Abraham. So the the thing that that Daniel has in common with with Nehemiah, right, in the early uh, end of the, the the exile, they are longing back to they're they're framing their life in terms of the Torah of Moses. Right, even though that was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior, they see it as core to who they are, and they are seeing themselves. That's why that you know we are under the curse of the Torah, and we want the blessing of the Torah. Right? There's all this blessing. What about the promise of to Abraham? So when Matthew starts his gospel, Caleb, like you're pointing out, with Abraham, David, Messiah, and then what does he put between David and Messiah? Exile. So you've got Abraham to David, David to exile. Exile to Messiah. That's the framework. That's kind of the historical chronology with the with the data points along the timeline that Matthew sets up for us. Then in chapter two, he's he's now going to go zoom and he's going to zero in right on that last point. Yep. Okay. So let's read this because uh, there's a lot going on in this passage. I'm reading Matthew uh, two one through eight. I'm in the ESV. And uh, yeah, here we go. Now after Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Um, so these are, these are, these are some points that we should probably be pointing out. Uh, and a first century reader, they, when they hear the name Herod, they probably, they, they probably right. have a little bit of a shiver. I mean, this guy was brutal. Right. 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 Um, but they also associate him with like these major archeological or, uh, uh, architectural feats, right? Sure. They associate him with aqueducts like water and and the city ports like Caesarea and the temple of course and the Herodian you know sure. Masada probably if they've heard of that <clears throat> okay so in the days of Herod the king behold wise men this word is actually magi uh, men from the east came to Jerusalem saying where is he who has been born king of the Jews mm. This right here is extremely interesting to me. And we'll talk about this in a little bit. Let's keep reading. Because it s- echoes of de- who's the, who are the Jews. That goes back to Abraham and the promise that kings would come out of him. David, who's the king, exile. And now it's like, where's the king of the Jews? Right. Right? We had Abraham, we had David. Then there was nothing. Exile. Okay. Now right. we need a king. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. 
They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod oh, summoned the Magi. I love that scripture. Uh, I know. Then Herod summoned the Magi uh, secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Okay, mm. so there's so much to unpack here. First yeah. of all, what we have, we have Magi, and the Magi uh, are not like a secret people or anything. They probably came somewhere from maybe Persia or something like that. They were ast uh, astronomers, right? They uh, were really into the signs in the heavens and the stars and all these kind but of they stuff. They had some idea of a king of, of the Jews. Right. They had well, hope. Well, it, this phrase, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So, first of all, you have people who are not Jews, are not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet they come to worship, they, they see his star. How in the world did they know that, that the Messiah had a star? And we can look at scriptures that, I mean, certainly um, those in Israel, um, they, they were probably looking at the, at the, uh, the passages in the Tanakh, right? Um, Sure. So Numbers twenty four seventeen. I see him, but now, but not now. I be, th remember this is uh, Balaam's blessing. He says, "I be behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Seth." So that's Numbers twenty four seventeen. But what, what's interesting about the Matthew passage is that the, is that the Magi saw the star, and they came. The other interesting. This reminds me of what Paul writes in First Corinthians, that God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. So, in other words, <laughs> it's it's kind of uh, it sh it shows how back upside down the thing is, because Herod calls himself king of the Jews, right? And so he would he would be the person to ticked. know. Like if you wanted to know, <laughs> you'd go to Jerusalem and, right. and and you'd find out, and they would tell you. Right. If if we were in a world that was not upside down, but the world is is upside down, you have someone coming from way outside the system coming to say, hey, we're here to worship the king, you know, and they're like, uh, OK, just a second. Well, <laughs> you know, like, no, notice what happens. Go. Notice what happens when Herod, the king, heard this. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Right. So how do we take Jerusalem there? I take it as the political, the people who are like government. You know that they're benefiting off the the system, right? I don't take that as religious. I take that as I agree. You know what I mean? People who are like benefiting from the they're at the teat <laughs> in the na nanny state. They're at the uh, maybe that's not the right. Thing, so, but but then what is then he says he assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people. So no matter what, we know that there was some religious. Uh, uh, Jewish religious affiliation, right? The scribes, the Pharisees, maybe the priests, maybe, maybe, maybe Herod's like, how come you guys didn't tell me? Yeah, exactly. So they're like, well, we're really afraid of you. So we're not going to say anything to you. <laughs> you know, we're, but, we're just trying to keep our jobs. But, the, but, but the words out now, right? The Magi have, have come for these, these oh, yeah. astronomers have come. There's something in the, in the sky and, and they, they, their dress, their apparel, right? 
their the wealth probably they had with them when their car- caravans. This must have got attention. Oh uh, yeah, and not only that, but the fact that that uh, you know, it seems to me that there was obviously some kind of astronomical sign that clearly happened. And I, unlike, you know, it, it, scholars are, are totally split on this. Some people say, oh, it was just it was it was supernatural. It was something that happened that that they only saw, that, only they saw, or was not related to. Things that we can look up in like the NASA database or something. But the reason I the reason I have a problem with that is because they see it and they associate it with the star of of the King of Israel. And there's a lot of speculation on what's happened here in this. And uh, of course, the dating of all this uh, makes a huge difference. Um, obviously, uh, Luke and Matthew tell us that um, this was during the time of Herod's reign. Herod, according to, I would say, the majority of scholars, um, it's if you look in some like your net Bible uh, notes or if you look in, there's some other uh, Bible notes that you can look at, uh, they'll tell you that Herod died in March of 4 BCE. So his, his birth would have to be before 4 BCE, um, March 4 BCE, if this, this story had to be before that, if you take the traditional dating of, of Herod's death. Um, so... Um, I'm going to read a little bit out of my dad's commentary on Matthew because I found this very interesting. Uh, you can find this on um, TorahResource.com, and uh, it's in the store section. This is volume one of uh, my father Tim Hagg's commentary on the book of Matthew. He says, "O king of the Jews, found often in the Gospels, is only uttered by Gentiles. Jews use the phrase king of Israel. How is it that the Magi referred to Yeshua by this title? Apart from the possibility, if they were from Babylon, that a tradition based upon Daniel's prophecy was known to them, it may have been that the astrological phenomenon they had observed was of such a magnitude as to be applicable. Uh, For example, Tacitus remarks that the general belief is that that a comet means a change of emperor. So much so that when a brilliant cor- uh, cornet now appeared, people speculated on Nero's successor as though Nero was already dethroned. Even the sages remarked that every righteous man has his star and, sh- and it shines according to the brightness of his deeds. And that's in uh, the Midrash on Psalms. There is little doubt that the prophecy of Balaam informed the Jewish perspective that a star would accompany the appearance of Messiah. A star will come forth out of Jacob and a scepter will rise out of Israel. Both Onkelos and uh, Pseudo-Jonathan understand this text as referring to Messiah, as do the Midrashim. Likewise, the Qumran society interpreted Numbers 24:17 as a prophecy of the Levitical Messiah. Finally, the fact that Akiva attributed this prophecy to Bar Kosefa, changing his name to Bar Kokhba, son of the star, in order to proclaim him Messiah, witnesses to its early and strong messianic interpretation. So I think that's, a, that's very, very well put. It's a great summary of all the data. In other words, just to re, you know, to even boil that down more. Right. We have data points from Targums, from Qumran, from the the historical. Uh, situation where you have a rabbinic, early rabbinic sage, Akiba, in the early 2nd century, maybe in the 20s or early 30s, uh, 130s, I mean, of the 2nd century, um, attributing that passage to Bar Kosaba, calling him the Messiah. Why? They were 70 years, they were coming up to 70 years since the destruction. 
So right, right. It, just roughly speaking, the destruction is in 70. As they get close to the year 140, Rabbi Akiva is doing the math. And he's like, it's been 70 years, right? We're coming up. We are going to have victory, right? There was this idea of 70 years of punishment. We're going to have the victory. Oh, and we have a military uh, mighty man who's going to lead us. And he, and he used the word Mashiach to describe him. And, of course, this Numbers 24 passage. So he didn't invent that. That kind of, right. uh, that kind of association gets traction because it clicks with a widespread, right? It has currency in a large, uh, larger circles of Jewish communities. And so uh, all that boils down to say it's not a stretch to say 100 years earlier. Well, we know that from Qumran. We have enough data outside the Gospels to show this was a connection that Jews had in mind. Now, one thing we don't have, to my knowledge, is that when he calls him a star coming out of Jacob, mm-hmm. I don't know that there was a, a sign in the heavens that Akiba was associating. Right. But he certainly, he certainly, I think this has been established, that the timeline of the 70 years, there is a counting of years going on. And the idea of freedom, right? Sure. He so, started minting, minting coins for this right. new king. Yeah. So um, some of the uh, now I've scholars are split on some scholars say that uh, this all happened back in like 19 BCE. Now, that's very rare, um, but I've which particular which sign the star. Or oh, the, the, oh, this they're saying the star. Okay, yeah. So I've I've uh, composed uh, five astrological signs that happened around this time. I'm not saying that any one of these is the sign. I'm just uh, looking at s- things that different scholars have proposed. Halley's comet showed up in uh, 12 BCE, but I think that that was a little bit too early, personally. But who knows? There was a triple conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter in 7 BCE. That means that they, can, they, were, um, they came into conjunction three times, which was rare. It's a rare thing. In February 6 BC, the three planets, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, were separated by about 8 degrees. According to Chinese records, there was a comet in 5 BCE. And uh, there's, uh, there's an article that I put in the show notes um, that I found to be fascinating. Whether or not we agree with him or not, that's uh, completely besides the point. Uh, this scholar uh, makes, uh, it's from a book, but, th- but somebody uh, did us a favor and put it online. Uh, and uh, he, makes the, he makes the argument that the, that the comet that uh, is recorded in 5 BCE was what the Magi saw. And then there was also a comet in April of 4 BCE, but Herod, if, but if Herod died in March, this comet would be eliminated from possibility because it would be too late, right? If Herod dies in March, then you have a comet in April, um, that probably wouldn't work. So I think that, uh, one of the three things happening in, in, from seven to uh, five BCE is probably, um, at the top of the list of, of possibilities of what the Magi saw and why they would have chosen one over the other, well, that's all debatable. Here's another question that we could interact with is why would, uh, and actually uh, this book, which I also referenced in the show notes, uh, the chrono- chronological aspects of the life of Christ, 
This book has been fascinating on this subject. He makes some very interesting, um, he has some very interesting ideas, and I think that, that he's convinced me on some things, but um, I think that it's all very debatable. Um, but basically he asks the question, why would Mary have gone with Joseph to Bethlehem? Um, she's very pregnant at this point. Uh, women didn't have to be present for the census in, in Rome. Um, and so why would Mary have gone? I wonder if she knew the prophecies, obviously the angels talked to her, right? Said that you're going to be pregnant of the Holy spirit. Right. And so I wonder, you know, how, how well versed were people in the prophecies of the Messiah? Did she know that, that she was going to give birth in Bethlehem? I mean, it's something we can't answer, but it, it's just kind of a, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about if she It's knew- not, it, it's, I don't think that's uh, too far of a, of a stretch. Here's why. A, she was told directly that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, right? Even as a virgin. B, we know that she must have, if from that very alone, uh, that very fact alone would have connected her own memory of what God's promise is to send the Messiah, verse, and been more all of a sudden now I'm really curious about what are the full implications of this, and B then we know that she meets with uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's family right, and that because two, uh, we know that her. Uh, that Elizabeth is is miraculously pregnant with uh, Yochanan, John the Baptist. And there's a whole prophecy associated with him. So you know that these when these two women get together and talk, <laughs> they're not just talking about, you know, well, how do you know? Well, I don't know. How, but but it's <laughs> little stuff. They're talking about promises that but go I'll- way back. Obviously, the Bible was not like, you know, she's not sitting there with a codex of the entire Tanakh. Oh, so, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the question that I... The, the but bigger... Zechariah is a Kohen, so he's trained, he, he probably has True. access to all the, all the texts and probably, you know, very quickly and easily. <clears throat> my, that's my presupposition there. I agree. I agree. And then finally, the last thing that I would uh, say about this... And the, the expect, so once again, we have the priests and we have the, you know, probably some of the Pharisees, the ruling uh, religious class in Jerusalem that have now been tipped off by Herod that these people have showed up. Okay. And they're saying that, that whatever's happening in the sky, which I assume everybody can see, right? I think that the religious leaders in Jerusalem could see it too. Herod could see it. It seems like, right? Because it says that it rested over, over Bethlehem. Um, and so, uh, he sends the Magi to go to Bethlehem, but then interestingly enough, and we don't know when, when this time, you know, how long it had been, but he go, Herod realizes that the Magi trick him, right? I think I have this scripture already pulled up. Um, let's see here. Yeah. He knows that they sniffed his ulterior motive Yeah, and that they weren't going to, they were not going to give him, uh, any connection so that he could because uh, they knew he was up to no good. Okay, So, so Matt, here's another Matt, wait, thing. Wait, wait, Here hey, you know that hey, you have a Gentile who knows that the present king is a 
is uh, is that is, is showing is, up is not representing the true God of Israel. Right. Right. They okay. see him as, as a fraud. So 2.13 and following of Matthew. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared when the, yeah, uh, to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt um, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, uh, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So I think that some time has passed now. He realizes that he's been tricked by the by the Magi. They're not coming back to tell him where this this person is. But then what what he does is he sends you know he's he basically sends a killing squad right, and they they try to find all these babies in in Bethlehem and the surrounding village. I mean now we have the the uh, in our modern time obviously we have the internet we have cell phones we have phones we have the postal service whatever word gets out quickly. But I have to assume. That if all of a sudden Herod is killing babies, baby boys, two years old and under, in Bethlehem and all of the surrounding area, word gets out. Right? To me, this is another uh, sign pointing possibly to the idea that there was something stirring around Jerusalem now, around Israel as a whole, that, dude, Herod is searching for people. The, the priests and the scribes, you know, the, the priests and the, the, and the Pharisees, they're saying that maybe, you know, that Herod was looking for the Messiah, that the Magi came, that these guys came from Persia or wherever and, and said that this, that star that was in the sky for however long was the star of, of the Messiah, right? There has to be this anticipation now building. And then all of a sudden he's killing babies like, dude, my nephew died in the, in the Bethlehem massacre that Herod put on because he was looking for some kid under the age of two that's supposed to be the king of Israel. I mean, don't you think that this spreads like wildfire? I don't care if you have internet or not. I think this goes pretty, pretty quickly. And then of course we have, uh, I mean, the, so, uh, I'm just looking at what else I have here. Um, oh, yeah, of course. And then we have Simeon, right, in Luke, in the Luke passage, Luke 20, uh, 225 through 27. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What does that mean, that the Holy Spirit was upon him? I think that it means that he had faith in, the, in what the Messiah would do. Right. Well, and God was, yeah, that God had uh, set him apart, that he was chosen by God. He certainly read the scriptures um, in a way uh, under the leading of the Ruach HaKodesh. In other words, so he's reading and he's being inspired from the scriptures by the spirit and directed of what scriptures to be meditating upon, what scriptures to be uh, clinging to and what promises in the day that he's living in and he's, he's right in there and uh, see the, to really me, the, amazing story. This reeks of, of Daniel nine to me and it had been revealed to him by the Holy spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. <clears throat> and he came in the spirit into the temple 
And when the parent and when the parents brought in the child Yeshua to do for him according to the custom of the law, which was to circumcise him, right? And then he 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 blesses the he blesses Yeshua and, and he's obviously very excited. But the main verse here is 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Well, I I mean, I have to assume, could it have been a dream? Of course it could have been, right? That's not, that nothing is outside of, we're, we're doing a lot of guessing, I, I would I would think. But to me, I see exactly what you said, Rob. He's meditating in the scriptures, Right. He's and it's he's not, worshiping. He's worshiping right, in the temple. Right. He's worshiping. So here's here's a good here's another good point is that even though he he knew that Herod was corrupt, Simeon did, oh, right, yeah. and he probably knew that there was a, a lot of political stuff going on. He was holding on to hope, and he was it wasn't preventing him from worshiping in the temple, right? Like the Qumran group, you know, we're out of here. We're not going to set foot in this place. So. But he knows that it's broken, right? He knows the system's broken, and he's waiting for God to act to set right. things right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I mean, we can continue to speculate on what the uh, what the expectation of of when the Messiah was going to come. But what we can gain from all of this is several things. Let's go down the list. Uh, here we can we know that uh, there was a messianic expectation in the first century, right? Whether or not they knew it was going to happen in their lifetime or not, that's beyond the point. They were eagerly awaiting the coming of the Messiah. They were not the uh, Israel and the Jewish people as a whole were not the only ones, right? Uh, it seems that the the pagan magi are uh, also expecting something to happen, and they see something in the sky, whether whether it was uh, the aligning of constellations or, mm-hmm. um, or a comet or whatever it may have been. It could have been supernatural as well, but they were expecting it, right? And this is what makes me think that it wasn't supernatural. So even, unbel- even non-Israelite pagans were awaiting this. And then the word kind of gets out, right, to leadership and to the religious leadership, to the priests, to the Pharisees, and of course, then to the lay people as well. Once the killing of of the of uh, males two and under in Bethlehem takes place, so this is kind of what where we're uh, where we're going to start. I think forming now. What what, what were they actually expecting? Um, you know, what was the mess- messianic expectation? Right. And um, you know, obviously, well, can I say? Can I share one more thought that course. came to mind? Because right where you stopped in, in Matthew two, the next thing he quotes Jeremiah thirty one, but he doesn't quote the the Brit Hadashah passage. He quotes earlier in Jeremiah thirty one, where it talks about Rachel weeping for her children. Right, and what is this doing here? Well, if you remember, Rachel's grave is in Bethlehem. Right in the Torah in Genesis, it says that Rachel died on the on the way to Ephrata, which is Beth that is Bethlehem, and her grave is there to this day. Right. So, if you remember, why does Matthew bring up here in the at, at Bethlehem? Well, there's a couple things. Rachel was Jacob's love, right? right? His first love. If 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 Jacob if the Laban thing wouldn't have all transpired, Jacob would have married one woman and it would have been Rachel 
And that would have been the end of it because it, it says well, he loved her so much that the seven years was just like a few days, right? Because of his love for her. But, and of course, she gives him Joseph and then, but no other children until Benjamin. It's the only son that Jacob actually names Benjamin because remember the women named all the, all the sons. But, uh, but also with Benjamin is the 12th tribe. It's the, so Rachel's death is at the time when now there's a nut, there's 12 whole tribes now right. with her death. So there's this association with, uh, Rachel's death is also kind of now the kingdom of God is in a way represented in the world by the, the full 12 tribes. And so there is this connection too. And Paul, Paul of Tarsus identifies himself as a Benjaminite, Right. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul, when we start talking about him and his discussion of the Messiah, because that's another source, and maybe in one of the future next episodes we'll get into well, how does Paul, coming from a Pharisaic trained perspective, connect uh, Tanakh scriptures about Messiah with his teachings about Yeshua, because that gives us another data point. But there is something significant here about Bethlehem, about like you point out, why did they leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem? Um, and this affiliation with the kingdom of David, Benjamin's place, the tribe of Benjamin's place with Judah um, in terms of the southern kingdom. And then this this longing built into the Torah itself with the, the sad, you know, it's one of those passages that, that if you're, you know, like me, you, you could, it can you can weep, you know, when you read this, this story, because you, you understand Jacob's love for her, but yet now she's dying. So there's this, you know, that Jews, uh, in the second temple era, up even to, up to today, they revere this, this grave of Rachel. And that whole story is built in. And it's like, well, what is God doing in the big picture here? Right. What is this? What is he, uh, what is this Israel? Why, why are, uh, Israel even a nation? What is God doing for the world? Right, All these loops that are left uh, open with the Tanakh are people, and then the, the, the suffering and the oppression and the occup- Roman occupation and the political upheaval, the poverty and wealth, you know, side by side. All these things are stirring, I think, in people's hearts in this sure. first century to like, what is God going to do and he's certainly he's going to send a redeemer. Certainly he's going to fix this because it can't get any more broken than this, right? right. I mean, that's I, I think that that's behind it. Anyway, another. So uh, we have we there. have we have two good comments in the chat room that I'll read. Uh, Lois Morgan says, "How do you know they were that is the Magi were expecting it before they saw it? That is the star of of the Messiah." And my answer to that is because they associate it with the birth of the king. Of the Jews, yeah. Somehow, I, I I would agree with you. I think that's that's really our only uh, answer to that question is to say, well, somehow, I don't think they divined, oh, King of the Jews. I think they had an idea. It was already of, there. Who yeah. of of the province Persian province of Yehud, and, or you know that there was this province there, and that there were these stories about that there's a temple there, and it, you know that somehow the Jewish stories had some circulation in Babylon, maybe through Daniel. I don't know. So uh, Peter asks, Tim said the term king of Israel was used rather than king of the Jews used by Gentiles. Why? Um, No, I think you might have misunderstood that, or maybe I'm misunderstanding your question. 
the term that the Magi use is, we have come to worship the King of the Jews. In the apostolic scriptures, the only people who use the term King of the Jews are from the Gentile nations. Right. No, I think he. I think he. What I heard him say is, "Why is that? Why? Why? Why would it only? Why would not Jews be calling it the King of the Jews?" Good question. King of Israel. I think that's. Yeah. Maybe it's because maybe it's the sense of, from an inside perspective, it's all. It's it, there's a hope for uh, bringing together of all these twelve tribes again, as a full nation, like it was under David. Um, whereas the outsider you know, raised in Persia, they're not thinking of the theology of 12 tribes or is a, they're thinking, oh, it's a, it's this province called Yehud out there and they need their own king. Um, that That's a guess. I don't know. You know, for the people who have made uh, suggestions on what might've been seen by the Magi, um, I have my own personal uh, opinions on that. And I've actually, I, you know, I do, I have been convinced more one way than another. However, I don't think that it's uh, beneficial necessarily uh, to try to explain those. And the reason why is because uh, we once we do that, then we uh, try to date set. And um, I'm not sure that that's exactly – since there's so much split within scholarship over this issue – um, I think I, and since it's not a, uh, it's not something that's really going to benefit, uh, substantially benefit our, our understanding of, of, you know, whether or not he was, Yeshua was born, uh, in four or in six or in seven, I don't think that's going to really shift anything within our theology. So I don't think it's really, uh, me hanging my hat on a specific, uh, idea and why I do that is not really going to be beneficial to our listeners because <clears throat> I think that, uh, our listeners can, can uh, study and 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 uh, see the differences between the scholarship as a whole. Okay, well, I hope that this has uh, been informative and beneficial for our listeners in some way, shape, or form. And um, I would encourage you to uh, shoot us an email if you have questions or if you have comments. Uh, you can also call our comment line. Our comment line is two five three four six five. 3205. I'll give it to you again. It's 253-465-3205. As I said, you can email me uh, and I share all of all the emails that comes come in for us. I share with uh, Rob for the most part. Uh, chag at TorahResource.com. That's chag at TorahResource.com. And of course, don't forget that the, uh, the show Messiah Matters is brought to you by Torah Resource. And we encourage you to go to Torah Resource and uh, look around and uh, enjoy a lot of the different things that we have. All right. Well, if there's nothing else, then uh, finally I will just say what we hope to do is to talk about the same kind of issue and expand as, uh, you know, continue to expand this idea of what the first century expectation was of the Messiah and also who the Messiah was and what people expected from the Messiah. And so we hope that uh, you join us next time as we look at our great God and Savior, Yeshua the, Yeshua the Messiah, because it's all about the Messiah. <laughs>